so it is probably not the most um, promising way to start this message uh, to tell you that what I am going to say to you today, at least the beginning, you may not understand. However, every time I get up here, I'm always at risk for that, so it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> so here we are. We'll give it a go. The experience I want to share with you, the challenge is that it's just really difficult to convey using words, which is the best thing I have. So again, we'll be able to try. It happened about five and a half years ago when I was on an eight-day Vipassana retreat, insight meditation retreat. Now, just to contextualize this for you a little bit, as part of that retreat, I was silent the entire time. The teachers weren't, but I was silent the entire time, and I was doing between 12 and 14 hours every day of rigorous contemplative practice, which meant I was getting in touch with my own heart, my own mind, seeing how busy it is in here, seeing how kind of cuckoo it is in here, seeing all the stuff that's in here, whether I liked it or whether I loved it or disliked it or couldn't stand it, learning to sit with it. And one of the guided meditations that the teachers led us through was a variation on an old Zen koan. Imagine the face you had before your parents were born. Imagine the face you had before your parents were born. Your face sneezed before your parents were born, yes. God bless you. Now, the, the goal of a koan is not to solve it. It's actually to see how it can change our consciousness and our awareness of ourselves, particularly around identity, particularly around identity we might hold very, very tightly. And so as part of this guided meditation, this riff off this old Zen riddle, the teacher had us do a meditation, a 45-minute visual meditation on our hand. It's lines, or my hand's lines, it's creases, the veins, the color, the tendons, the fingers, the fingernails. i got to tell you, in the first 15 minutes of this meditation, I was like, when can I stop staring at my damn hand? <laughs> and then something else happened. Then I really started to be, minute 20 or 25 perhaps, really started to be curious about my hand. Hmm, I've never seen that before. I, in fact, I don't know things like the back of my hand. <laughs> and then the teacher said something. So often we think that, you know, our hand, our bodies hold life. And he just switched those terms and said it is life that holds your hand. And in a totally non-conceptual way, it was like one of those whoosh moments. And I got it. Whatever it was, I got it. Because in that moment, this 45-minute meditation on my hand, it was no longer my hand. It wasn't dissociative, but it was totally depersonalized. This is life's hand. You have hands. Every person or most people who've been alive have hands. 
There's nothing terribly original about this. (laughs) And yet the fact to have a hand is something so precious and blissful and amazing. Again, that's using words to describe something that was just an awareness. It's a profound sense of connection and consciousness. And in moments like this, if we have to use words, which I guess I have to, doing my job. Poetry is really good. The great Sufi poet, Rumi. He said at one point, I went looking for God and found only myself. And I went looking for myself and found only God. The all that is in the each, the each that is in the all. That's what I think that moment was about, of this profound sense of connection that I could not have argued myself into or even, although I tried, argued myself out of. That is how I understand today's song. The light is inside of me. And the light is inside of you. And the light is inside of anyone, all of us, every single creature being. The light is everywhere, is omnipresent. And if we can allow ourselves to really be shaped and formed and perhaps even changed and transformed by that wisdom, we will see our lives differently. So I was going to show you a video, but I didn't want to like risk two things possibly that would totally confound you today. Uh, The video is from, it's kind of an evangelical self-parody. It's called, It's All About Me. And truly, you will only get the video if you have spent time in evangelical churches as I have over the years trying to understand what they do and take the parts that work and let go of the parts that don't. And it's sung in the style of praise that is common in so many evangelical churches so you got to get a couple things if it's going to be funny to you at all and i thought 85 percent of you probably didn't want to not laugh when i showed the video but that's what it's about is it's all about me as if this song was saying my light's inside of me but that's not what this song is saying it's not even and it's a wonderful gospel song goes this little light of mine no there's no Possessive here. The light animating my life, animating your life, animating everyone's life. It doesn't negate us, but it does something better. It connects us beyond our boundaries and our borders with each other. I think it's what the song is talking about is just like that moment when I felt this is my hand. And it is so cool to have one. The moment that we recognize the light that is in us and is in everyone and is in everything, the light that truly is us, here, there, and everywhere. That is a moment of awakening to the universalist promise. A source and a destiny common to each and every one of us. And if we live in the light of that, it changes us. It's not just a universalist promise, though. That's the easy part. Or maybe it's easy for some of us. The universalist practice, that's the tough part. How do we really live so that we honor that light with us in ourselves and inside of everyone? Because if it's in me, it's in you. 
How do we live in that way? So that the light that is already us, already within us, is moving back towards reunification from the light that already is, that makes us possible in the first place. This is the universalist promise. This is universalist practice. Are we moving in the direction of what already exists? The everywhere light that already is. I love this song at this time of year. It's written by Peter Mayer, a Unitarian Universalist songwriter. We sing it, you know, I think once we tried it in November, but the synonyms, you know, the, the syllables didn't work right. And we tried it in early January, and then we retire it, because it doesn't make sense in July. <laughs> right? It doesn't make sense around the summer solstice. It makes sense around this time of the year, especially if you're like me in any way, in which the dimming of the light actually has some effects on kind of how you... You see the world and maybe feeling a little bit more bleak at this time of the year. So that reminder, the light is inside of me, the light's inside of us, even as the light is dimming. So every year I think this song is really powerful and a really great reminder. Remember the promise, even as the light dims. And this year I think is particularly potent, particularly powerful. Yeah. As we live in the light of this election and this world that we're in and many of us are asking ourselves, how do we live these values of this tradition, this promise of universalism in this environment? How do we live these values, these beliefs with people who we care about, who we differ from and disagree with? Instead of just assuming light and not paying attention to it, how do we really practice it? with each other, within community, and take that light out from community and share it with the wider world. That's the practice part. And if there's one thing I've found out about human beings in the years that I have been one, and if there's one thing I have found out about being a mindfulness teacher in the years that I have been doing that, is that practice sounds really great. <laughs> and people love the fruits of practice. But to actually sit and do it, or to walk around and to be in the world and do it with each other, that's always the challenging part. To show up as the people that we truly want to be. This is something I've heard from a lot of you over this past three weeks or so. This is something I'm trying to take to heart for myself as I continue to try to, uh, what do they call it now, piercing the bubble. Piercing the bubble of our news sources, piercing the bubble of our privileges, piercing the bubbles of what it is to just be a limited human being with a limited perspective. And I've got to tell you, that's a real heart practice for me, and I know it is for many of us. And I've got some, some, some sources that help me with this, one of, one of which is this. You know Humans of New York? Yeah. I always forget the guy who, who, who started it. I just know about five, ten years ago. Brandon, thank you. We all need each other because, again, I'm limited. Brandon, who started it just by going around and taking pictures of people in New York City where he lived and finding out their stories and then sharing those stories with all kinds of other folks. And it started very small, and now it's, you know, every post is seen like by millions of people. And recognizing that... It's not just about the humans of New York. It's about the humans of everywhere. He did things like, as some of you remember, talking with Syrian refugees 
learning their stories, expanding our awareness of folks who may not see their lives. So one of the things that Brandon has done, perhaps understanding some of his own bubbles that he lives in, is in this time after the election, he went to this place, Macomb County, north of Detroit, much more blue-collar, much more exclusively white than the places and the circles of society in which he runs. And i got to tell you, those are stories I don't hear a ton of. And there's some really powerful stories, if you've been following it. There's some stories that make me angry. Some stories that I would like to argue with. And still, these are authentic stories of other human beings. And to pay attention is, above all else, the quintessential spiritual practice. One of the other things I've been doing since this election is trying to pay attention to what happened. How did we get here? And some of it has to do with a place like Macomb County. Some of you, actually a bunch of you, sent this to me. There's a very high correlation, it turns out, in counties that, again, it's not causation, but it's a strong correlation between counties that just four years ago voted for President Obama and this time went for President-elect Trump. And it's in places like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania. And that correlating factor is this. Those counties that seem to have switched or flipped have a very high incidence of overdoses from the opioid epidemic. That is ravaging all kinds of communities and all kinds of families. High correlation there. So I say this yeah, as one of the ministers here, and I also say this as a person who is in long-term recovery, and I say this as a graduate student in social work who studies this stuff. There is such pain in our society right now. And I say this as a minister who has presided at the funerals of people here in a community like this who have lost their lives to the opioid epidemic. One of the things that I find very powerful and positive about the moment that we are in is that there is more empathy now than there ever has been around that term, so deeply stigmatized, addict. There is more empathy now, especially as it's come closer to home and closer to heart for many of us. Maybe for some of us, this has always been a part of our lives. For some of us, this is a newer awareness. It reminds me of the thing that uh, Winston Churchill said, um, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing. After they have exhausted every other option. <laughs> he really said that. That's not like an internet meme. He said that. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, we are, we, are, we are trying to look beyond the prism, beyond the box of punish and incarcerate. Because, one, it doesn't work. And, two, it's so humane. And so I'm grateful for that. And so not but, and. I say this as a person in long-term recovery, and I say this as a graduate student in social work, and I say this as a minister, and I just say it as a person who's striving to be a better person. I remember the 70s, 80s, and the 90s 
when drug epidemics were presented to us, especially those of us who are white with very different faces. And we found complete lack of empathy on behalf of those who held power. We got mass incarceration, and we got more of the war on drugs, Democrat presidents, Republican presidents. We got more of law and order. We got, remember this hysteria? Remember this unscientific hysteria? Crack babies and super predators? Remember that language? Yeah. That's what we got then. Because the truth is, is that in this country, the pain of people with skin like myself has mattered more. So I love that we are making progress as a culture towards destigmatizing and more empathetic responses to people who are in pain. And yet, we see the fruits of zero-sum thinking about the light, of thinking that it's only the light in my community, not the light in others' community, that matters. Zero-sum thinking, dividing the light between us, will not work. Because the truth is, if we had had better responses then to the pain of other people who might be different, not as wealthy, not the same skin color, not living near where we live, whoever we is, however you understand the we, maybe we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now. Dividing the light never works. It just means eventually the pain that is out there will also be the pain that is in here. This is universalist practice, not to embrace the zero-sum game of more light for me and less light for you. Because to diminish anyone else's light is to diminish our own. That's kind of divine mathematics right there. That's the way it works. And so hopefully we can question all systems with love that want to divide the light between us and within us. There's a guy named uh, Baratunde Thurston, who some of you might know. He's written for the, uh, the Onion, and he's written for The Daily Show, and he's just a crazy, exceedingly bright guy who talks about his experience as a black man, and recognizing this moment, this moment as a moment of real challenge, and also talks about this piercing of the bubble as something that has to go everywhere if it's really going to make a difference for us. He says it is not just for the cities to offer to the rural. It is for all of us to embrace and struggle through and gain from. That's really the whole point of this democratic experiment. And by the way, because we're in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, just cross out democratic and put in. That's the whole point of this Unitarian Universalist experiment. This is the heritage that's given to us. This is the invitation that's given to us. I had a friend who uh, about three or four weeks ago, uh, his name is Ian Merrill White. And he's a friend and he's a colleague. He's a UU minister. And he said something that I've actually heard uh, echoed, a post that some of you have put up that says that empathy is not enough. I agree with him. Empathy is incredibly powerful. It's the ability to understand someone else's pain, someone else's struggle. 
But what Ian was pointing to, he said, empathy isn't enough. Empathy has to be held by something deeper. What Ian has said, what others have said, what I agree with, is that it can't just be, oh, I understand your pain. Or I can understand what you're going through, if we can, in fact, do that. But empathy has to be held by something deeper, which is compassion. Something deeper, which is love. I don't just understand. I'm actually willing to care about your suffering. Empathy must be held by compassion if it really is going to rise to the challenge of this moment. It will help us with love critique those systems of thought, being, that want us to divide the light from each other. One of my uh, favorite uh, teachers when I was in seminary was a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr. Some of you know Reinhold Niebuhr? It's associated. Again, it's a loose association. Uh, but the serenity prayer that is so important and so close to our heart for so many of us, it's attributed to him. Whether he wrote it or not, well, we'll see. And this is back in the 20th century when theologians were actually famous people. Like Reinhold Niebuhr showed up on the cover of Time magazines. Ain't no theologian showing up on the cover of Time magazine anymore. If anyone reads Time Magazine anymore, but that's another conversation. <laughs> Niebuhr said something in his tradition, which is different than our tradition, but it points to a real truth. I'm going to rephrase it, but I'm just going to share it with you right now. He said, there is an equality of sin, but an inequality of guilt. Hmm. In our tradition, and using the words from today's song, we might say this. There is an absolute equality of light, but an inequality of how the world sees the light of everyone. That's the gap between the universalist promise and the universalist practice. That's our work, friends, to shrink that gap. So that there can be healing and I'm talking about transformative healing. I'm not talking about, apologies, Frank, let's all just get along. Although I really do believe that as well, too. Because <laughs> I'm a sentimentalist at heart, but sentimentalism, I don't think will get it done. To really get along with each other means seeing the differences and taking them seriously. And still being willing to extend our light towards the other. That's where the real work comes in, and that's how that gap is narrowed and the breach healed. This Advent time of the year, which in the Christian tradition talks about being willing to wait, <laughs> something many of us are not real good at, <laughs> but not wait in a passive way. Wait in the midst of darkness, wait in the midst of unknowing, wait in the midst of those things that we don't understand yet. So that waiting in the darkness actually forms us. There is one thing I'm grateful for, and it's a small thing right now. Actually, it's a really big thing, but I have a small amount of gratitude for it because it's really challenging. At least right now, I feel like a lot of things that we've kind of been talking around and talking about and kind of referring to in indirect ways in this country for a very long time, at least as long as I've been alive, a lot of these things are kind of (laughs) 
on the table right now here before us. We can only transform reality if we're really willing to work with reality as it is. And so I take hope and I take heart in the midst of all of these challenges. In the midst of all the bubbles that need to be pierced and in the midst of all the systems that deny the light in some of us while lifting up and celebrating the light in others of us. And all the sufferings and oppressions and injustices that come from that. This is the hope for our heart and our tradition that I believe is true at this time of the year. The mystery of this season and its invitation is that the light does not choose to be other. The light actually chooses to take on a body. And I'm not talking about Jesus exclusively. I'm talking about what's there in that story. That each of our lives can be bearers for light in ways we did not think possible. The light has never, in fact, been other or elsewhere. The light has always been in you, and it has always been in me, and it has always been in everyone. This is why this is a perennial question, but especially a really urgent question from right now. If Advent means anything to us, it's that in our hearts, and yes, in our hands, contains the life force, the light, the heartbeat of existence, the energy calling us back to each other to be the kind of people who heal ourselves, to be the kind of people who are capable in standing in that gap between the promise, the reality, and the practice that reveals the light once again. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me. Divine light. May we have that capacity to to see the places that we miss. To see the places where our own hearts may be walled off. And to be willing to go there and stand in that gap in those places in which aspiration has not fully yet formed reality. May we take seriously our differences with each other because that means we're really seeing one another. We can then really see each other's pain. We can really see each other's confusion. We can really see each other's hope. We can really see each other's promise. This invitation to grow hearts as wide as the world needs for the world to be healed That work has been going on for a long time. And so right now, that work is ours too. In truth, it always has been. Maybe right now we just know it a little bit more clearly. May we allow ourselves, our lives, to be formed and shaped by that love that is our promise, by that love that is our destiny, and by that love that if we just open to it, we recognize is here with us right now. Amen.